Madeline Beth McCann was an energetic, innocent, and heartwarming young girl. One more, big smile. That's pretty. Her unfulfilled childhood and endless potential to grow into an inspiring, creative, and world-impacting woman was cut short by an unexplainable, untraceable vanishing on May the 3rd, 2007, leaving all who knew her in person and eventually both the entire United Kingdom and surrounding countries grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the disappearance of Madeleine McCann and the mystery at Little Britain in the village of Praia de Luz, Portugal. This is Cold Case Detective. Madeleine McCann was born on May the 12th, 2003, in Leicester, England, to parents Kate and Jerry McCann. Kate and Jerry were Roman Catholic physicians and a loving pair, meeting in Glasgow in 1993, before marrying five years later in 1998. It would be another half decade before the couple bore a child and introduced Madeleine to the world two years before having two more children, a set of twins, Sean and Emily, in 2005. Madeline, along with her younger brother and sister, formed a beautiful kinship with their parents and often traveled around the world on vacations and seeing the sights around Europe. Both Kate and Jerry would later describe the McCann clan as the perfect nuclear family of five. Madeline's parents described her as vivacious, a lively young girl and lovingly extroverted. She was a ringleader amongst her infant siblings and fellow toddlers never missing an opportunity to extend impressive social skills and communicating with those who gave her attention. Madeline's openness usually developed into an uncanny humor that only an innocent, bright child could conjure. They said her ability to express herself, unveil her imagination, and communicate with her feelings was second to none. Madeline's burst of energy inspired her to enact role-playing and forming miniature stories with playmates creating a strong bond as she related so easily to other children. However, the never-ending drive in the little ray of sunshine often wore out her parents, constantly needing attention from the people in the room she occupied. In fact, Madeline's youth was accompanied by hardships just as much as the positive bits. Kate and Jerry claimed the first six months of Madeline's life were very difficult and that she had suffered from colic. She cried practically for 18 hours a day we had to permanently carry her around. Colic is an infamous illness found in babies, causing severe abdominal pain and intestinal blockage. The cries then transformed into screams after Kate gave birth to twins. Again, her parents explained that Madeline would run up and down in the background while Kate attended to the newborn babies. This hysteric hyperactivity would later prove a trait found in all the McCann siblings but never broke up the unconditional happiness felt between the family members. Friends and family of the McCanns offered similar sentiments as well. They all witnessed firsthand Madeline's brilliance and social inclinations, 
while also noticing her protective nature towards her two siblings, often mothering them when their parents were out. In fact, some associates of the McCanns believe Madeline and her siblings' camaraderie stopped at the presence of secluded strangers or an unknown group of people. However, because she knew how to engage even in foreign situations, relatives believed Madeline could get along with anyone if she was given the time. These careful observations and infinite effects of joy surrounded Madeline all the way up until a vacation she and her family took to Praia de Luz in the Algarve region of Portugal. Settling in a well-known tourist town for British holidaymakers, the McCann family quickly linked up with fellow doctors and assorted friends also vacationing in the area, starting on Saturday, April the 28th, 2007. Kate, Jerry, Madeline, and the twin youngsters were having a wonderful time on one of their many frequent trips, and all the good times seemed destined for picture books. That is until the night of May the 3rd, 2007, barely a week before Madeline's fourth birthday, Kate and Jerry went out for dinner, only to return to their flat, and find missing their resilient and radiant daughter. Because sometime between 8.30 and 10 p.m., Madeline McCann disappeared without a trace, leading a void in the hearts of not just her family, but in the hearts of people around the world, launching an exhaustive search that would soon evolve into the most discussed missing persons tragedy of the 21st century. On April the 28th, 2007, the McCann family travels to Praia de Luz, Portugal, for a seven-day spring break getaway. The 1,000-person village is nicknamed Little Britain for the vast amount of UK travellers staying in the area. The McCanns retreat to 5A Rua Drive, Agostino da Silva, a flat owned by a retired teacher from Liverpool. Throughout the next week, the McCann family dines with seven other friends and five fellow children. The adults, known as the Tapas Seven, consisted of Fiona and David Payne, Diane Webster, Jane Tanner, Russell O'Brien, and Matthew and Rachel Oldfield. All of the men worked together over the years, and their respective families all got along wonderfully. On day six of the vacation, May the 3rd, 2007, Madeline and her twin siblings hang out at the Ocean Club's Kids Club at the Praia de Luz Resort while her parents go for a walk at around 10am. During breakfast, Madeline asks her parents, why didn't you come when Sean and I cried last night? An hour and a half later, at 12.30pm, Kate and Jerry picked their children up from the Kids Club and have lunch back at 5a before setting off for the swimming pool. At 2.29pm that afternoon, Kate McCann snaps the last photograph taken of her daughter at the resort's poolside with the sun shining and Madeline smiling per usual. Between 3.30 and 5.30pm, Madeline and her siblings return to the kids club and eat dinner together. At approximately 6pm, Kate brings her children back to 5A while Jerry attends a tennis lesson elsewhere at the resort. Around 6.30pm, Jerry sends Tapas 7 member David Payne back to the apartments to check on his wife and three children. When the tennis lesson ends at 7pm, Jerry returns to 5A and helps Kate put Madeline, Sean and Amelie to bed. Their bedroom is fastened next to the front door of the flat and has a single window overlooking the car park and public street. The shutter is closed before the children fall asleep. 
Between 7.30pm and 8.30pm, Kate and Jerry clean up from the day's activities and share a bottle of wine together before heading off to dinner. At around 8.35pm, the McCann couple is the first of the friend group to arrive at the resort's tapas restaurant, located just 160 feet away from the A5 apartment. They reserve a table overlooking their living quarters, where the top of 5A could be seen. The resort staff leave a message in writing that the reservation is specific because the families have children sleeping back at the complex. 20 minutes pass by and a few more members of the Tapas 7 arrive at the restaurant at 8.55pm. As the friends begin their orders, Matt Oldfield quickly returns to the apartment complex to check on his flat and alert the Payne family that everyone else is waiting on them. 10 minutes later at 9.05pm, Jerry heads back to 5A to check on his own children. He walks through the unlocked back patio doors to avoid using the locked front door and potentially awakening the sleeping youngsters like they had been doing all week. Everything inside seems normal until he finds the children's bedroom door to be open about 45 degrees instead of just ajar. Suspicious, Jerry peers his head in but finds all three siblings fast asleep and accounted for. He closes the door back at 5 degrees, uses the toilet and departs. This is the last confirmed sighting of Madeline McCann. A few minutes pass by and Jerry stops to speak with a friend and fellow holidaymaker Jeremy Wilkins at 9.08pm on the road near the Tapas restaurant. Throughout the next hour or so, members of the Tapas 7 swap turns going back to their apartment complex and checking in on their respective children. At 9.10pm, Jane Tanner walks up the road to her flat and passes by Jerry and Jeremy Wilkins without their notice. On her way, she sees a man walking across the path ahead of her, carrying a sleeping young girl wearing pink pyjamas in his arms. It's a peculiar sight, but not uncommon to a resort with many families. Tanner finds her daughter safe in her room and returns to the restaurant. A little later, at 9.30pm, Kate gets up to check in on 5A once more, but fellow Tapas 7 friend Matt Oldfield offers to do it instead while he keeps an eye on his own family. Kate agrees and Matt travels to the McCann's apartment. Inside, he finds the door to the children's room opened again, but to him it means nothing. Instead, he pops his head in the door quickly and sees the twins sleeping in their respective cribs. From this vantage point, he doesn't explicitly notice Madeline and leaves the quiet building, assuming all is perfectly normal. A half hour passes by and Kate makes another 5A check herself at 10pm. However, when she goes to push the children's door open, a draft of wind from inside the room slams the door shut. Kate enters with force and finds the window open and the shutter pulled up. The twins sleep soundly in their beds, but Madeline is nowhere to be found. Minutes later, Rachel Oldfield rushes to find fellow Tapas 7 member Jane Tanner in her apartment and relays the news of missing Madeline. Jane immediately calls back to her sighting and explains, Oh my God, I saw a man carrying a girl. Matthew Oldfield then travels to the 24-hour reception desk at the bottom of the resort's hill to alert them of the disappearance. An alarm is raised and police are called at 10.15pm. 15 minutes pass before the local authorities arrive at flat 5A, along with the police. Around 60 staff members and assorted guests search the grounds for Madeline an exhaustive hunt that lasts until 4.30 the following morning. At 11.10pm, special investigators from the police judiciary 
venture to the scene and discover the sliding glass door that was found open by Kate McCann has a lock. Both Kate and Jerry are unsure if they actually locked it at the beginning of the vacation, while resort employees unveil that the cleaning staff will often open the sliding windows to air out apartment interiors. The special investigators are unable to confirm if this was the case. By the early morning hours of 2am, patrol dogs are called in to keep an eye on the search efforts. Six hours later, at 8am, four rescue dogs arrive to sniff the area around the resort and attempt to catch a trail of Madeline at 5am beyond. At 10am, the local police finally set up roadblocks to monitor traffic both coming and leaving the resort and surrounding routes. Over the next 24 hours, up to 20 strangers outside of the main investigators and family members interact with the 5A apartment, later proving to taint much of the evidence and cause headaches for future forensic work. In the coming days, police began interviewing anyone and everyone associated with the resort, or simply living in the area. Kate and Jerry rented out another nearby home to stay close to the investigation. Throughout the next 11 to 12 years, a combination of Portuguese police, Scotland Yard, McCann Associates, private investigators, and public empathizers have yet to find one solid trace of Madeleine McCann. After faulty DNA findings and tabloid exploitation, the case has entered a sphere unlike any missing persons tragedy before. Madeleine's disappearance changed the world to the point that many UK citizens and people close to the case define society as either before Madeline vanished and after Madeline vanished, regardless of cultural impact or giving value to the importance of one case over another. One thing is certain, until she is found, we must continue evaluating all theories, evidence, and tips until Madeline comes home or her fate is justifiably understood. And there are some major case points we need to examine. From the beginning of the search for Madeleine McCann, investigators knew that pinpointing suspects, or what the Portuguese classified as aguidos, would be daunting as the location of the disappearance happened to be a busy hotspot for tourists, residents, and complete strangers who came and went each day. Specifically, the late spring vacation season was ripe with faces both old and fresh, meaning the early list of aguidos would stretch to impossible numbers. Anyone could be guilty, while everybody was innocent at the same time. A dastardly catch-22. Luckily for the police, Jane Tanner recalled her peculiar incident from the evening of May the 3rd, sooner rather than later. Her sighting of a man carrying a young girl away from the McCann's apartment complex would become the focal point of the early investigation and remain as the major case point in the eyes of the public, following for almost six years. However, its importance isn't grounded by what it unveiled to authorities, rather grounded by what it distracted authorities from, considering it took up more than a decade of the precious moments spent looking for Madeline. Dubbed the Tanner sighting, Jane Tanner's testimony gave the first possible timeline of Madeline's suspected abduction. As mentioned previously, Jane had travelled from the tapas restaurant back to her flat to check in on her children at around 9.10pm. She walked down the road, passed by Jerry McCann as he spoke with a fellow vacationer and headed into the complex. Both Jerry and the second man would later say they couldn't remember seeing Jane walk by them that evening. 
and due to the confines of the narrow street, police initially believed Jane to be fabricating the entire ordeal. Yet, Jane stuck by her following claims and highlighted that while Jerry and the vacationer didn't confirm her movements, they couldn't deny them either. A few minutes of walking later, and Jane witnesses an older man with what appears to be a toddler in his arms. She says he was crossing the junction of Francisco Gentle Martins and Rua Drive, Agostino da Silva, moving east and away from the corner of 5A, where the McCann children's bedroom was located. His direction was first determined as suspicious, as he was supposedly walking in the direction of Robert Murat's residence, a 34-year-old Portuguese suspect early on in the hunt. Jane Tanner described the unidentified man as a white male standing at about 5 feet 7 inches, with dark hair and complexion that would indicate European or Mediterranean descent. He seemed to be 35 to 40 years old from a distance, wearing beige pants, a dark jacket, and the demeanour of a local. The girl he was carrying was wearing pink and floral pyjamas, cuffed at the legs, much like Madeline was wearing. These descriptions were curiously withheld from the media until May the 25th, three weeks after the disappearance. A few months later, in October 2007, money from a fund set up by the McCann family was used for a forensic artist to recreate a simulated sketching of the Tanner sighting. The result is now one of the most famous images associated with Madeline's case. Sadly, the intensive search for the man from the Tanner sighting turned out to be a six-year red herring chase. In October of 2013, Scotland Yard finally identified a British holidaymaker who matched the TS description and fully cooperated with police. He explained that he was indeed carrying his own daughter after picking her up from the Ocean Club and heading back to their flat. To prove his innocence, the identified man dressed up in the same clothes as was mentioned in the TS report, and visually matched to the specific profile detailed in the sketch. The man was also able to provide the clothes his daughter was wearing the night of the sighting, as well, and once again the alibi cleared when the unveiled pyjamas bore likeliness to Madeline's Eeyore set, but was in fact different. What frustrated authorities the most with the Tanner sighting wasn't the lack of information it provided, but rather the time it took away from other potential pieces of evidence and eyewitness testimony that would later prove vital. First off, the Tanner sighting led investigators to believe the main abduction took place between 9 and 9.15pm, which they based their impending reports on. However, after learning the Tanner sighting had little to no connection, they had to retrace their steps and recalibrate more than half a decade's worth of thinking. Thus, Scotland Yard turned their attention to another eerily similar sighting from the night of May the 3rd, 2007. This incident reported by Irish holidaymakers Martin and Mary Smith. The Smiths claim that they saw a man carrying another child at about 10pm in a location which was about 460 metres away from the McCanns in 5A. The Smith sighting man was walking away from the Ocean Club and nearing the beach at Rua 25 de Abril. The Smiths described the new figure as a male standing at about 5 feet 8 inches with shorter brown hair and a slim build. He seemed to be in his mid-thirties from the Smiths' vantage point and wore beige shorts, much like how Jane Tanner described the man in her sighting as not a tourist. The Smiths offered the same testament going as far as to say the man seemed uncomfortable carrying the child. 
The girl he was carrying had blonde hair, pale skin, bare feet, and was wearing lighter colored pajamas. Again, like what Madeline was wearing. E-Fit images were initially created back in 2008 when the testimony was first recorded, but the entire sighting was muddied when Martin Smith thought Jerry McCann fit the profile of the Smith sighting man. Oakley International private investigators were quick to strike down the possibility since Jerry had been confirmed at the tapas restaurant at 10 p.m., but the rumored confusion created sensitive press about the Smith sighting. It wasn't until October of 2013 that it reverted law enforcement's attention and reset the timeline to the abduction happening just before the Smith sighting. While the Tanner sighting ended in lost time, it's sadly a common thread found in many missing persons cases and criminal investigations overall. Where a lead seems revolutionary, yet can take years only to find it was a dead end. Regardless of results, the sightings are also proof of just how vast the spider web of possibilities is with Madeline's disappearance and the preceding searches, and how one simple memory or visual can spawn thousands of theories that send everyone involved spinning in circles. One of the early theories cultivated by Portuguese investigators actually considered Kate and Jerry McCann as suspects. The base of the claim was built by supposed DNA evidence found by cadaver dogs inside the family's rental car after Madeline's disappearance, as well as DNA matching hers discovered behind the couch in the 5A apartment. This led police to draft a 10-page conclusionary report, including wild ideas regarding a likely murder of Madeline a cover-up fake abduction that involved the Tapas 7 as conspirators to mislead police and even a claim that the number of suitcases each member of the party brought to Portugal was suspicious in nature. Realistically, none of the theories made sense or had conclusive evidence to back it up. The DNA found in the car and in the flat were tested using flimsy DNA methods and it was stated in the forensic reports that despite the matches to Madeline's DNA, the sample sizes were simply too small to consider credible, not to mention the hours upon hours spent questioning the McCann couple and their friends, who all cooperated fully and dedicated their testimony to truth and hope for Madeline's fate. In fact, almost as soon as the disappearance was reported, Kate and Jerry set up a project called Madeline's Fund, leaving no stone unturned limited, which immediately caught fire across the UK and raised thousands of dollars to help hire private investigators and allocate resources directly to spreading awareness. Unfortunately, the early consideration of the McCann couple as Aguidos fostered a tabloid firestorm that ended with lawsuits, defamation hearings, and unnecessary backlash that has turned a lot of the conversation around Madeline's disappearance to gossip and unsubstantiated finger-pointing. Because Kate and Jerry were soon relieved of suspicion after these reports were filed, they have since been 100% cleared by the current authorities. There is no reason to consider their involvement as a realistic or plausible hypothesis and will not be considered any further. Another early theory proposed by investigators was a burglary gone wrong. According to records, the time between January and May of 2007 saw an unnatural rise in burglaries and burglary attempts in the area, including two around the McCann's apartment in the 17 days leading up to their vacation. 
These reports suggested that a burglary went into place the evening of May the 3rd, of which Madeline interrupted after climbing out of bed and exiting her bedroom, hence why the doors opened further than Gary had left it. Then the burglar would have taken Madeline as a precaution, leaving through the bedroom window since it faced the street outside of the resort. In April 2017, Scotland Yard announced a foiled burglary attempt was no longer under consideration. After they had interviewed potential thieves in the area and other potential suspects, but found no evidence. While the theory wasn't completely ruled out, their focus would turn to other ideas. A third theory positioned by investigators, but quickly disregarded, is that Madeline wandered out of her bedroom on her own accord and was taken by a passerby or fell into a construction zone nearby. These musings were first discounted by Kate McCann, who reminded police that Madeline would have had to open the patio doors on her own, close the blinds behind her, remember to shut the door again, operate the child-proof gate at the top of the stairs, and finally open and close the gate at the street level, all while being a three-year-old toddler and unseen by resort members. It's also regarded unlikely that Madeline climbed out of the bedroom window under her own power as well. The most agreed upon theory by private investigators and law enforcement is one of abduction, including pre-planned abduction. This theory stems from the bevy of suspects seen around the A5 apartment complex in the days leading up to Madeline's disappearance, looking suspicious or acting out of a normal manner, possibly carrying out reconnaissance for a bigger operation. For years, police have been tracking down these suspicious men as well as known paedophiles, bogus charity collectors, and criminals who were later convicted of similar crimes and could be placed in or around the area in May of 2007. In the end, the unbelievable amount of press and scrutiny this case has received from various experts and media channels all across the world have bloated websites, editorials, and blog posts, with both theories and conspiracies. Some crime scene experts who have taken a dive into Madeline's disappearance have stated that they do not believe the scene backs up an abduction hypothesis and believe Madeline was murdered. Other followers call the police work in the case as nothing more than hunches, reminding us that the treatment of the 5A apartment was so improperly handled that no evidence or forensic examination could be carried out untainted. At least 20 different people went in and out of the room on May the 3rd, 2007, before it was taped off. And molecular testing wasn't carried out for months, allowing new vacationers to rent the apartment from the resort before it was locked down by police again. This coincided with constant bickering back and forth between Portuguese police and investigators from the UK, where tensions ran rather high after numerous law enforcement entities made their way to Portugal and interrupted the search. To top it all off, the tabloid interference and major media bombardment against the McCanns skewed public perception and hindered authorities to go about their duties without incredible tension waiting around the corner. With the vast amount of possibilities, no theory can accurately be concluded as the answer. Authorities have released tens of thousands of documents and translated almost every single one of them. They've investigated over 8,000 claimed sightings of Madeline and had counted in 2015 that they took almost 1,400 statements, collected over 1,000 exhibits, investigated 650 sex offenders and 60 persons of interest, not counting the next four years of research. As of today, Madeline's case has received 11.75 million euros in funding, 
Yet, there are still so many unknowns associated with Madeline's vanishing, and until they are resolved and police release every document, report, and case file, we must wait for new leads to surface while doing our part in spreading awareness. But let's take a look at some of the suspects. One way we want to help divulge information is by sharing a list of suspects still wanted in the hunt for clues leading to Madeline. Due to the sensitivity attributed to the case and the unfortunate loss of time in the early years of the investigation, we won't be drawing our own hypothetical conclusion, instead highlighting critical police sketchings and efits of people either acting suspiciously around the time of Madeline's disappearance or who have raised red flags in a variety of situations around Europe. Firstly, we have an unidentified woman whose profile was released on August the 9th, 2009. The woman in question was seen near Port Olympic Marina in Barcelona, Spain on May the 7th, 2007, just 72 hours after Madeline disappeared. She appeared agitated, was nicely dressed, but kept pacing up and down the street by Al Rey de la Gamba restaurant and bar. Two passing British men noticed the disturbed woman and decided to approach her when one of the men, who wishes to remain anonymous, asked if everything was okay. The woman asked, Are you here to deliver my new daughter? No other details are known, but the British witnesses say that after their conversation, the woman had a colourful argument in Spanish with a local inside the neighbouring pub. Again, no other details have surfaced, except that the witness described the woman's accent to be of Australian qualities and appeared as an Australian Victoria Beckham lookalike. Next, we have an unidentified man who was spotted three different times by a fellow holidaymaker, Gail Cooper, who was in Praia de Luz on vacation from England. The first time she saw the man, he was walking in his lonesome under a heavy rainstorm along an abandoned beach on April the 20th, 2007. Later the same day, the man with olive skin and shoulder-length hair knocked on Gail's door and pretended to be a charity collector, a popular con around the resort area during spring of 2007. Two days later on April the 22nd, Gail saw the man for a final time hanging around a children's event sponsored by the Mark Werner Resort. Gail was called back to Portugal in 2008 to work with the detectives on recreating the man's likeliness through two sketches. At first, the man was thought to be the same man whom Jane Tanner witnessed carrying a small child away from the apartments back on May the 3rd, but when he was cleared, the long-haired man was confirmed as a separate individual. In 2010, private investigators showed clips they had filmed of a man from inland Portugal doing labour outside of a white truck. Gail watched these clips, unreleased to the public, and found that despite the lack of a moustache and lighter hair colour, the recorded man was the same man from the Praia de Luz beaches in April of 2007. Similar stories, compared to the previous men, have been updated with police sketches as well. Again, other witnesses claim to have interacted with fake charity workers in the area around the time Madeline vanished, and gave descriptions that were translated to pictures of these two men. Two other fair-haired men were also described to have been hanging near the McCann's flat around May the 3rd, and were thought to be of Scandinavian, German, or Dutch heritage. Another pair of EFIT profiles were uncovered in old Portuguese police reports, and subsequently unveiled to the public again representing suspicious men appearing in the area. 
In addition, the Smith sighting evidence also resulted in two different EFIT creations for a man seen carrying a small child at 10pm on May the 3rd. Another mysterious encounter resulted in police sketchings occurred three days after Madeline's disappearance, but wasn't announced to the McCann family or the public for over a year, until the eyewitness was approached by Mirror Magazine. Anna Stam, then 41 years old, made a call to Dutch police when she thought Madeline and an older Dutch couple walked in her Amsterdam shop on May the 6th, 2007. According to Anna, the man was between 35 and 40 years old, with a moustache, dark skin, and spoke Portuguese. The woman he was with was a little older, maybe in her 40s, with brown hair and spoke French. Accompanied with them was a little girl. The following are direct quotes from Anna in Mirror Magazine, who said, I'll never forget the girl. She had her hair in a ponytail, huge green brown eyes, a pale face which showed no emotion. I didn't like the man, he didn't look like a nice person. I work in a party shop, so most people smile when they come in to buy things, but he didn't smile back at me when I smiled at him. He had no sparkle in his eyes, he was short with me and seemed angry. I got the feeling he didn't want me to interfere with him and the others. The woman was also peculiar, acting stressed and uncomfortable, Anna said. She tried to smile at me, but it was out of obligation, not from the heart. The whole way they reacted made a big impression on me. The man spoke in Portuguese, I know, because I have Brazilian friends. The woman spoke in French, while the little girl spoke English. It didn't seem like a real family. When the girl spoke, she allegedly mentioned my name is Maddie, followed by she is not my mummy, they took me from my holiday. Anna later recalls thinking, the woman told me she was in a station wagon, a larger car, Maybe they were going on a long journey, because this woman spoke French. I immediately thought that they would go to Belgium or France. This would later connect the dots with early police theories that feared Madeleine had been taken by a Belgian paedophile gang, followed by three separate sightings of Madeleine lookalikes in Belgium after May the 6th, because Anna wasn't 100% certain that they were any criminal acts associated with the encounter. She didn't report it to the police right away until a month later, when she saw the Madeleine McCann case discussed on television. The Dutch police created EFIDs and sent it along to Portuguese police on June 18, 2007, but the info never made it to the McCann family. So when Anne heard that over a year later, in the summer of 2008, the McCann family had no knowledge of her testimony, she took it upon herself to connect with the current British law enforcement, covering the case, and cycled back through her memories. Thus, the sketches of the French woman and Portuguese moustached man were created, leaving Anna fearful her testimony came too late and the potential lead lost in translation. Probably the most disturbing police sketch is that of pockmarked man. The man in question was seen multiple times hanging around the McCann apartment by three separate witnesses, all in the time frame of the McCann's vacation. The first witness, a 12-year-old local girl who saw the pockmarked man outside the balcony of A5 at 8.15am on April the 30th. In her own words, the girl said, I was walking to the school bus stop. I go this way to school every day. I saw a man on the small path behind the block. He seemed to be looking at the balcony of the ground floor apartment. My grandparents used to live in that apartment, so I always look at it as I pass by. A few days later on May the 2nd, the day before Madeline disappeared, the girl saw the same man looking at the McCann's flat, again around lunchtime. 
The second witness was a female British tourist who recalled the following. I saw a man acting suspiciously on two occasions. The first time I saw him, I was walking along the road with my daughter. I grabbed my daughter's hand and pulled her towards me because for some reason the man unnerved me. The next time I saw him, he was standing on the opposite side of the apartment. He was watching it. I would describe him as very ugly, with pitted skin with a large nose. The third witness, a man from Cheshire, was walking with his partner at 11.30am along the road by A5, but couldn't remember if it was May the 2nd or 3rd. He said, I saw a man standing next to a wall, on the opposite side of the road was a white van. I paid particular attention to him because he appeared to be focused on watching the apartment block. As I walked past him, I looked at him and for a split second we had eye contact. But then, he just carried on staring at the apartment. All three sightings have incredibly creepy backstories to them and truly sends shivers down the spine when inspecting the man's sketch. If Madeline's abduction was pre-planned, finding the figure, who was seen multiple times by multiple people, analysing the McCann's living quarters, could lead to valuable information. If the man in these testimonies, or any of the presented drawings, rings a bell at all, please speak up and say something. Even though it's been almost 12 years since that tragic night in Praia de Luz, we must remain diligent in our pursuit for Madeline's captor or anyone who might be involved. We'd love to make detailed videos about every single possible suspect, but there are so many involved it pains us to leave out smaller players who could still have a big role. We recommend everyone who's interested in the case to research the other persons of interest, and we have provided some useful links in the description. Madeline wasn't just a ray of sunshine, but also a child constantly absorbing knowledge, with the potential to grow into a gifted and gracious human being. She was stripped of that opportunity, but the chance to rekindle her spirit isn't gone forever. There are still zero signs or clues provided that would lead investigators to think she is deceased, and until we find evidence that suggests otherwise, we must act as if her heart still beats somewhere out in the world. Whether it's in Europe or elsewhere, Madeline's will to survive does not go away with time past. Her energetic soul and compassionate heart deserves our attention, our grace, and our utmost determination. The little girl who loved to communicate, display her affection for family, and find the beauty in all that entered her youthful, innocent life needs our help, and we'd be defying our duty as fellow dreamers of the human race if we didn't pour our faith into the efforts of finding Madeline McCann or direct evidence that leads to someone who knows of her fate. If you want to stay updated on this case, visit findmadeline.com, where her parents still post blog entries on the status of their family. If you or anyone you know has information regarding the case, you can fill out a contact form on the website. Email investigation at findmadeline.com or call the hotline at plus 44845838 No tip is too vague, and no assistance goes unappreciated. It is with much respect and sincere hope that we ask in good faith to all of our viewers, bring Madeline home. This is Cold Case Detective.